everybody and welcome to the Maya Minds podcast. I'm your host George and here at Maya Minds we want to demystify mental health and make sharing mainstream within the exercising and sporting community. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Just before we get started, I want to remind you that here on the My Minds podcast, we do often talk about eating disorders, body dysmorphia, exercise addiction, suicide, and other potentially triggering topics. Usually in the description below, I will write down what we talk about specifically in this episode. That being said, I do hope you enjoy this, but please do be careful. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Myo Minds podcast. As always, I'm your host, George, and today is a special episode. I'm here with Marilyn Okoro. Marilyn, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, George. Thanks for having me on. Oh, uh, I'm, ex- I'm very excited. I'm very excited. Yeah, I'm, I am. I'm, I'm actually good. You know, it's been a crazy 18 months or so Mm. even more so for me i'm sure we'll get into it but i'm two months into retirement from track and field everyone always goes young to be retired but yeah from track and field i'm actually quite old um so yeah new season of life just navigating that transition and it's it's been a journey but i'm actually suddenly feeling like i'm on solid ground again which is good (laughs) that's awesome and you were saying beforehand that today is your official day of sort of deciding what you're going to do with your life basically yeah i mean i feel like i'm always in this phase but i did have quite a stable job throughout lockdown um as an athlete that's kind of you know what we just clutch onto. and i was I, I got a charity job so i was working for a lovely little charity in wigan and was supporting the homeless and those in crisis and i was health and crisis coordinator and unfortunately got made redundant because as with those roles it's very funding dependent but the funding was cut um and yeah i think it was kind of just that little nudge from god or the universe to sort of say come on you can do this because there's lots of things that is just bubbling away and it's taking that big step into the world of business and actually being self-employed again and i know there's a bit of an emotional attachment to that because that's what you are as an athlete and it didn't go so well the latter half of my career so this is day one start as i mean to go on and so far so good (laughs) wonderful that's good news so far so good that's all you can ever ask for isn't it um (laughs) so obviously you know two-time olympian bronze medalist like all these amazing achievements but i want to start at the beginning um and i know we've spoken um, briefly before in a, a group thing that we did um, and you mentioned that your kind of upbringing was, you know, kind of, I suppose, difficult. Are you in the difficult situation? Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. So we're going a bit down memory lane. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's important to start with your roots and where it all began, because that is essentially what makes you who you are in this present day. And I definitely believe that the adversity I would say I faced growing up um, in childhood and the the few memories I have because I think with trauma you just kind of block a lot of it out and I'm mm. doing a lot of work now to kind of understand some of my behaviors and habits and and also release a lot of emotions that I've been holding or suppressing for a long time but I grew up in northwest London Stonebridge Park which is just tucked behind Wembley and a single parent home council estate Stonebridge is pretty rough still to this day it's known for the gang culture crime rates, you know, and just the kind of, you know, deprivation really. Um, and, you know, I grew up pretty poor, um, Nigerian background. So my mom was very big on education. She was also really strict um, mm. and that's played, you know, good and bad <laughs> in my sort of drive and determination. 
Uh, but a lot of responsibility was on me from a very early age. I had to grow up very quickly. Mm. I've got two younger siblings and, you know, I was essentially, you know, a mother figure to them. So um, I've spent time in care. Um, so, yeah, there's been there was a lot I had to navigate very early on in life. Um, and I think that's kind of what gave me my resilience. Mm. You have no choice, really, but to keep on keeping on. So yeah. that's kind of what I kept doing. Yeah, I think that's, that's something you hear um, quite often in, in stories like that, where you know you go through something difficult and then it teaches you things. Obviously, there are the negative sides of it as well, um, but you get you can get these positives from it as you as you yeah. move forward. Um, so I imagine you know living in that circumstance. You know, did you ever think you you do all the things that you've done? Like, do you think that if you told them little Marilyn when you, you were a little kid that you're going to be doing what you're doing like yeah yeah so I do I literally I'm a public speaker and I you know started naturally through going into schools they always invite elite athletes to come and share your journey and I tell these kids like dream big like dream as big as you want because if you're willing to do the work and you're willing to go through the downs and to get to get to the ups um you can achieve whatever it is you want um and you know i'm writing a book and it's it's called fueled by no and it's out in december and i think it's really that kind of i just never i refuse to lose hope and i always just thought there was something out there bigger than what i was seeing i don't know what it is call me just imaginative kid um and i was very lonely as a child i didn't have a lot of friends i didn't do a lot of sort of kids things people always go oh, do you remember playing with that and do you remember watching this children's program and i didn't do all of that i was watching adult stuff and and i was in isolation a lot so i was just left with my imagination uh, and i just always thought there is something great that i'm supposed to do did i think it was the olympics no um but i thought there was going to be something that whatever i did it's going to be spectacular so i just ran with that literally literally yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah literally ran with it yeah um so that's, that's interesting so you kind of always felt like you were kind of I, I feel like i feel like when we're kids everyone has that thought of like because everyone wants to be like an astronaut or like everyone wants to do something like crazy don't they and yeah. then somewhere along the line everyone gets dampened down what do you think that is it's called life <laughs> <laughs> life is what's happening when you're busy making plans and you're busy dreaming and the ones that you know enjoy this life or get you know these extraordinary things out of it the ones that just never give up on those crazy dreams everything everyone's told you is crazy you just keep going i think the more people told me no the more i wanted to do stuff so um but yeah i just think it wasn't always bad stuff that's fueled me you know there's been some times where some incredible people have come along and just helped me along or some you know incredible things have just happened which have been unexplained so you know it's it's just being brave enough to show up for yourself and for those dreams really yeah i i agree 100 percent. i think um yeah we often get discouraged by the little failures that happen and it's just yeah. Oh, it's yeah. just you know going through anyway yeah. and and you know failure and fear have been my two critical friends my two <laughs> you know i i they've fueled me to a lot so but I've only had to, I've only realized that by getting through the other side, you know, and that's something I try and remind people. It's like when you are in a bad space, it's not the final destination. That is mm. that is something to remember. It's a, a test. It's a lesson. And it's something you're supposed to get through. And yeah. with the right support, with the right mindset, with enough rest and energy, you can get through. 
Mm. Uh, just for the listeners at home as well, the little squeals you're hearing are Marlon's very cute dog. Um, he is wonderful. Oh, don't, don't apologize at all. I just, I want to be, oh, he is, he's, she's showing him to me now. He's, he's actually adorable. a bit of a showman because <laughs> he knows when I'm on camera and he does this thing where he jumps from couch to couch. Normally he's just sleeping. Um, but he wants his pitter patters to be heard. He wants yeah. to be seen. So he's a bit like his mum, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know we're very used to dogs here. We have uh, Millie, the Maya Minds dog, who isn't here today. Oh, she's um, she's <laughs> she's left me. But um, yeah, we're very used. We're very dog friendly here, so it's completely yeah. fine. Um, and it, what, one thing that kind of this conversation kind of leads me onto is, I think you know, when when you are in that those those difficult circumstances and you are pushing through, I think often when you do that is is when you get these sudden moments of these opportunities, these, these things that just kind of happened to you. And I know that you had that sudden opportunity. You, you mentioned when we spoke before of going to boarding school, you got this opportunity that came to you and that seemed to be something that came up. So how did that come about? And how, how did that feel at the time? I imagine it was scary having to move away. <laughs> so yeah, there's those defining moments in your life. And this is definitely one of them for me um, in terms of being a positive one, a blessing. And what that was, was my dad, who's always lived in America, don't really have much of a relationship with him. He decided to send me to boarding school. And I remember I was in year five and everyone thought I was getting sent away because I was naughty and I was the complete opposite of naughty. So I did everything by the book. Um, and yeah, for me, it was just this massive opportunity to get away from life in Stonebridge, get away from my family a bit because I know that sounds terrible but it was really stressful yeah understandable if you have if you have that that position of being like the eldest and having to look after people yeah. I imagine it was yeah and I was just really quite miserable I realized looking back and so I was given this opportunity to go to this really sparkly new school and we had a really you know posh uniform and <laughs> didn't think about could I afford it um but um yeah, and Abbots Hill was an extraordinary place for someone who is completely from a different world to go to because I think it welcomed me really well. I didn't really feel out of place. They nurtured me and um, really kind of invited me to kind of be part of the atmosphere, be part of the, you know, the school ethos. And that was really the, they put a lot of emphasis into the pastoral care and just gave every girl that chance to dream and explore what it is that they wanted to do. and. I think that's really where Marilyn the runner was born, Marilyn the singer, Marilyn the debater, everything <laughs> that I, you know, just threw myself, all those opportunities, I was determined to make them work for me. Um, and it was a real blessing because that's where I discovered my talent for sports. I played a number of sports. Lacrosse was my first love, uh, tennis, uh, netball. And then one day my PE teacher told me to go to running club. And I was like, why? <laughs> <laughs> That sounds so boring and would just, I run everywhere in lacrosse anyway. So um, I did go along because I didn't want detention and it was kind of cool to be, you know, a goody two shoes. Well, there was only 20 of us in our year. That's another unique thing about okay. Abbott's Hill. There was 180 in the whole school. Obviously that has changed now because it would not survive. Yeah. So, you know, we really got that dedication and that attention and it was like literally a big family. Mm. Um, and I went to running club and that's where I met George Harrison. <laughs> so it's a good name. Great name. Great he name. is perhaps the most influential person in my career because he not only saw that I had talent, but he also saw that I lacked, you know, access to sort of keep up with my peers and, you know, finances. And he really filled all those gaps for me. 
And George, you know, he's still on the Abbey Orchard in St. Albans or at the track in Watford to this day, such as his dedication, but he sewed a lot into me. And, you know, he's the one that pretty much put that Olympic thought in my head. Mm. I didn't really take him seriously because on the other hand, I had my mum that I told you about before who really didn't champion sports. Um, it was just something that you had to do in PE and that was that. And I remember going home telling her that, you know, George has told me I can go to the Olympics one day. And she was adamant that I just got that idea straight out of my head. She's like, I didn't send you to school to run, read your book, you know, in Nigerian culture, you're a lawyer or a doctor or a pharmacist. That's it. They don't want to hear about anything else. Education is everything. And that's what you're going to you know, come out with something that's going to make you a lot of money. So I understand now in her fears, but I also I'm Igbo Nigerian and we are very much academics, but we're also very creative. And I just, you know, think a lot of our parents need to just kind of see that we can, with support and nurturing, do really well whatever we, you know, apply ourselves to. And that is kind of what I set out to prove to my mum, I can do it all. Um, and so, you know, obviously now she'll say, you know, well, you've got me to thank for your drive. If I wasn't so strict, <laughs> you've got the Olympics. <laughs> but, you know, it really took me getting to the Olympics for her to actually you know, support me, uh, which is a very high standard, I have to say. Um, so yeah, Abbott's Hill was just, you know, just saved me really. And that's where I developed my love for sports, but also exploring. Um, and I was just determined to see how far I could go. And I'm glad George was right, because, you know, I went on to another prestigious boarding school, which the experience was slightly different there because I, I really did feel the difference and I was not from that elite kind of world. You know, we've got a stellar alumni in Richard Branson, Henry Cavill, Marilyn Okoro. <laughs> um, but I was very, oh, I was just, oh my God, this place, it's Stowe in Buckingham and it's near Silverstone. And it was just a totally different world. Even the people that were from London spoke a different language to me. I was just like, I don't know where the King's Road is, but I'm <laughs> lovely. <laughs> so again, you know, from that early age, I think that's when a lot of my internal issues started because I'm trying to navigate, you know, showing up as Marilyn a stoic and also being this athlete and also, you know, try not trying not to suppress who I was deep down, but also thinking where do I fit in and how much do I reveal about myself and um, so yeah there's a lot that I realized started there then obviously the image things um, yeah a whole lot so and, and also you're just trying to be a teenager right so and navigate yeah. exams so yeah it's it's a lot <laughs> yeah I mean it sounds like yeah there was so like you say the on one side you're a teenager you know you're not really sure who you are and then you know you're in this school that's so like not what you're used to and then you know you're being pushed into sport but also your family aren't that keen on you doing that and so it sounds like there's a lot of different kind of identities to live up to like that must have been yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah and when it comes to identity this is something i'm really trying to you know help people understand when you're retiring from sport you have an identity crisis and i think i latched onto the running identity because i felt like it was the one that i could put in any arena that i i, I entered mm. you know I, and it, it was the thing that everyone rem remembered me for i was maz that runner and i was a good runner but yeah a lot of identity things going on at that stage and just trying to figure out who you are as a sort of 16 17 year old anyway is <laughs> pretty yeah. tough yeah <laughs> and then you you, I think you mentioned in the talk that you went to university, right? Is that right? After that, I did. Yeah, yeah. I went to what, university of Bath. 
we had, yes that's it i remember because we had a we had someone else from the university but i think we were all we were yeah, we did. <laughs> um what was it like at university being so i'm because i'm sure we are, people listeners here will be um university athletes student athletes what was it like for you being a student athlete but being like you know really good student athlete <laughs> like you know what how what were the was there a different pressures for you like obviously you know thinking about the were you at that stage thinking i might actually go to the olympics or you know what was that like quite yeah okay. so um i went and I, I went to the university of bath and it's a sporting center of excellence and i found it just by chance i knew i didn't want to go to loughborough sorry guys <laughs> <laughs> i'm a i'm a loughborough alumni no because you know it was just where my biggest competitors were and I just like to be a bit maverick and yeah. different um and then I, I had Birmingham on there I had Nottingham which was close to Loughborough um and then one in London just for the sake of filling up the UCAS form and I went to visit Bath it was the only one I visited and I just mm-hmm. thought why haven't I got this on my my form so <laughs> I think I scratched off Nottingham and changed it for Bath. <laughs> obviously the sporting environment is incredible um and it's it has team bath which is the scholarship program and obviously it's just s i mean i think i went back uh, for black history month last two years ago um and it's just transformed so you can imagine back in 2002 the wow i got then um and so i was already kind of going into this elite kind of sporting atmosphere but i was studying you know french and politics so I had the best of both because it's super academic as well and really amazing in the language programs it has. Mm. But it was nice having that balance because to my, you know, the, the guys on my course, I was just Maz. And so I liked having that. And then in the sporting at the sports village, it was like, okay, around quite an elite team. The, the university team was awesome. We had such talent when I was there. So I loved it. I just fitted right in. It was um, a friendly environment. I think what's great about universities as well is you do have sort of the elite programs and then you do have the the student body program who are um, just trying to keep fit, get active, enjoy, you know, Wednesday's madness or whatever it was, which I wasn't really involved in, (laughs) but you know, it's there. So I'm a huge champion of of university sport. Mm. um, And I work closely with Bucks because I feel like there's so much we can do. I spent five years working at the University of Central Florida and looking at the student athlete programs there. Um, I just think, you know, there's so much more that we can do to support Mm. um, our student athletes, whether they're sporty or not, whether they've got ambitions of an Olympics or not. um, Just university sport is big. So I, I loved my time at Bath. Yeah. I'm just thinking as well, because you, it sounds like you had a, um, thinking of this whole identity thing we've been, there's been kind of a running theme here. Um, in regards to balancing, you said you had a nice balance of academic and sport. How did you balance that? Like, you know, what, like I'm thinking advice for people listening, maybe who are struggling to to balance that. So there was a point where it got really tricky because I was, I was studying French and politics. I was also, um, working two jobs as well as training. Oh, wow. So there's a lot to navigate there. But what I did was I found stuff that worked for me. So I, you know, I trained when I could train. Sometimes it meant I wasn't with the university team. Um, and I found jobs that worked around my schedule. So one of them was the one stop on the corner of my street, which was pretty, pretty fun and easy. <laughs> and then the others were silver service waitressing. Um, but what I didn't, you know, this is kind of that 
anyone who's trying to achieve stuff, you, you, you think you've got to do it on your own and you've got to find a way. And one thing I, I had to do, I was forced to do, was because I was in a financial crisis and I went to my department and I asked for help. And there was all this help that I didn't even know was available to me. So, you know, do ask for help. Let your tutors know what's going on, you know, or find someone you trust that you can confide in. Um, and it just changed the game for me. And, it, and they were so supportive in whatever it was I needed to do. Um, so, yeah, just that kind of letting communication is, is important. Mm. And I didn't even think like <laughs> the dean of my faculty would care about, you know, oh, I've got to go and do this sporting event. But they really did. And they really supported me um, so much. So in my final year, it clashed with a major championship, which mm. was a Commonwealth Games. <laughs> And I was like, yeah, of course I'll go. And then I thought, oh my God, it's final year. I've got exams. <laughs> <laughs> um, but again, Bath were brilliant. And, you know, they said, okay, get your, as much of your exams as you can out the way. And then, hey, we can look at deferring your dissertation, which worked really well for me because it meant I did my exams and then I could concentrate on the rest of the season, went out to Australia, came back. It was actually a double championship year for me in the end. Um, and then I deferred my dissertation to the year after. Um, so there's always a way, but it's, you know, it's making sure you've got the right supports in place or you even just know where to go. And it just starts with that conversation with, with someone. Yeah. And I think that's a, I think that's a, um, thing in all universities. I think you, you'd be surprised if you ask how much help you can get, yeah. you know, if you do ask it is there. Um, and I think the only thing, the only barrier is, is that like, oh, maybe I shouldn't ask, maybe it'll look weird or bad or, and they, they, like, they're there to help you. But also, I think when you're in those kind of stressed or pressurized times, it's hard to think clearly. Mm, mm. Um, and you do think like, oh, my God, everyone else is just coping. Why can't I cope? Um, so that's the thing. And I think this is why we have these conversations more and more so that people know that you're not alone. A lot of the thoughts that I had, I was just thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to think I'm crazy. But then like so many people like I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, the more we talk, the more we realize that a lot of the stuff we're going through, a lot of other people have gone through it or are going through it, too. And then you can find those supports. Um, and, that, and that's just, you know, what I've learned through, you know, my mental health journey. Uh, as, as a high performance athlete there's so many stigmas that you know i've had to smash through um, and i've only done that by unfortunately the hard way which is why i want to be such a strong advocate and support you know anyone that could resonate with anything that i mention and that that's that's amazing yeah and i i um resonate massively with when you're saying that you always you everyone thinks they're the crazy one like, you know, I, I have um, an eating disorder and, and even when like, you know, I knew other people you know, did the bulimia stuff, like the, the kind of induced vomiting and things. I knew other people did it, but I was like, no one does it like as bad as me though. Like I'm the, I'm the dodgy one. Like I'm the one that nobody can be, you know, it's, it's always yourself, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And that's mental illness, isn't it? That's what it does to you. It backs you into a corner and makes you think that you are not enough because there's something, you know, I'm doing a lot of work in this space now. And one of the things is society, like, so for me, I was always worried that I didn't look ill enough and no one's gonna think that I'm struggling with that because of, you know, the outward appearance, you know, I had to keep up and I've learned this from a long time ago, you know, in those posh schools and just trying to fit in and always learning to have a brave face. Yeah, so, you know, that voice in that internal critic is something we really need to work on and 
find people to help us work on once we once we get the strength like for me when i was fell into depression i'm quite used to anxiety and that rush um, because of the adrenaline of being an athlete but when i was when i really burnt out and i hit rock bottom i didn't recognize myself it was very shocking it took people you know and that's how i knew something was really up because it was people i hadn't known for that long mm. noticed that dramatic change in me and then it made me think oh maybe i am acting differently and you know as bubbly and as loud as i am i was very happy to just stay in bed all day and you know um i think some days the most i did would walk from my room to the shower uh, and that was a good day so and that was before bentley and that's why i just let him do whatever he is because he's such a massive part of my life now um and yeah it's just that voice inside and getting getting to grips with it like it's it's not something that just goes away you know as we know mental health is a continuum um but you you can thrive and you can live you know a full life it's just once you identify your triggers and have the right people in place and, and in that healthy environment um it, it's key because when you do hit those lows again it's not as low hopefully and yeah i, I think that's an awesome way of putting it and thank you um for for sharing that and um yeah like i i i really like you know the reason i set up my minds is because a big part of it is because of that that stigma of the image of if you're yeah. someone in the gym doing exercise and eating healthy and in air quotes there but you know, then obviously you're fine like obviously you're fine like you know you're 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 an elite athlete you're you're fine of course you are and it's it isn't oh the God. case um yeah. and yeah I, I think it's such a a misstep in society that we've just we've just decided that people who exercise lots are fine because exercise is great and that's all it don't matter anymore like just just no, put them to the side. yeah yeah oh you exercise lots oh you're fine don't worry that, that's but that that's almost what it's like um mm. it's a kind of an exaggeration but yeah it's a scary thing so i kind of want to um go back a little bit i know we, we've gone a bit um off the rails Sorry. no 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 I, I love it i love it but i just i want to make sure that we touch on everything because there's so much i want to talk about um and you mentioned that you know in your your did your first commonwealth games in your third year what what was that like i, I know you said you ended up getting the help and stuff but what was the initial thoughts was there like i imagine excitement and fear yeah. and like yeah what was that like i think it was the first time so george i met at 10 and that's when he said you know you could be one of the you know the uk's best 800 runners and at that point that is he's the only one saying that so i was like everyone else is telling me how bad i am at endurance and how big i am for an 800 runner so i know you love me but i think you're a bit wrong but in my head i was thinking maybe i could be a 400 runner because i fit into that bracket a bit better but he had planned my transition to you know 400 into the 800 for a certain point um, and that's something I encourage, you know, parents and coaches that are coaching young athletes. It's like, let them naturally fall into their event and let them try different things just to keep the variety and keep the motivation going. Cause that's what works for me really well. I did other sports as well. So I didn't burn out in my athletics at 12. Um, but yeah, so getting my Commonwealth call up was immense <laughs> because it was like, wow, I'm really good for starters. And it was, it really was. I went to Turkey for the British Universities Championships. I was ranked maybe 47th out of 50. And I came out with a bronze medal and I smashed my PB. 
Um, and I was just really enjoying my athletics. I didn't really do much out of university, you know, um, competitions, to be honest, or club level matches. And, and, and I had that big breakthrough and I came back and I thought that was it, you know, and then you get that call up. Um, and I remember there's two of us, same age group, and we both ran 201. Uh, exactly the same, 201.90. So we both got selected to replace um, Kelly Holmes, who had withdrawn and retired. And that was Gemma Simpson. And uh, I was like, wow, I'm actually going to Australia. Because that's the other thing, right? It was Australia. So you just don't turn that down. Yeah. And it was that little bit of snapshot insight into the elite world. And, you know, man, it did not disappoint. It was incredible. You know, I was sort of rubbing shoulders with people that I'd just seen on TV. And I thought, oh, I like a bit of this, maybe. <laughs> maybe George was right. Um, and he was. I went out there and just excelled. I, I made the final. I ran two minutes for the first time, which is like the golden time for a world-class 800-meter running, all while people telling me I couldn't do it. So I was feeding off of that, you know, that's why my book is what called what it's called, because I was just like, okay, tell me what I can't do and I'm gonna go and do it. But I also wasn't having to think too hard. I was naturally just running off what I had. Um, and I guess the main difference there is the weather. It was, you know, beautiful conditions. We went in March time. So Australian summer, the atmosphere, you can't help but raise your game. And if I'm honest, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just running. <laughs> <laughs> Just, just go, just look forward and run. run. Yeah, let's, I don't know when it got so complicated, really, for me. It's literally just run. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Keep turning left. <laughs> I, um, I also got, because I know you mentioned there that the, you know, you, you often got told that you couldn't do stuff because of your body shape. You said that, you know, people said that you were too big for an 800 meter runner. Like, you know, obviously being an athlete is difficult enough with the, the body expectations and the, 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 the kind of anxiety around food and exercise and everything, but also having people say, you also don't look right, I guess that, that like, how did that feel? I imagine it was horrible, but you know, how did it feel? Can you explain it? Yeah, I think, you know, in the early days when I was getting it, it was shocking because it was, you know, grown people telling, you know, essentially a child mm. that they don't look right for having fun and playing sport, which was in itself pretty twisted. And to be honest, it, it didn't bother me when I was young. You know, you're just fearless. You just have this, <laughs> so what, I'm winning. Mm. Um, but the subconscious mind is working and picking up things. And I think a lot stored in there. And, you know, I, I, I kind of washed over it, but, you know, my first brush with kind of eating disorders was at Stowe and it was kind of the era where everyone had these massive thigh gaps and skinny was you know cool and I just will never be skinny unfortunately so I would already set myself up to fail and I was just trying all, all sorts and I thought well I eat a lot so maybe if I just eat and then you know bring it up then that will help you know so but what helped me at Stowe was I had an incredible tutor and she kind of helped me channel my positive thoughts into my running and look at my body differently and look at my you know my fueling and my food differently so i quickly went into that food for performance mode very early and then so when i was running well it was fine but when i wasn't running well it was like okay maybe i need to change that maybe i am eating too much and you start sort of self-deprecating there but it wasn't until i really was in the depths of like 
you know, <laughs> like, okay, I'm going to the Olympics and the head coach is telling me I need to lose X, Y, Z kilos. And you've got all these experts that are just trying to make you change you essentially. And no one's really pulling out what was good about, you know, my performances. Um, it was always being told what was bad and let's change this. And I know we're trying to get those marginal gains, but I'm someone who lacked a lot of affirmation growing up. And, you know, that little bit of feedback that was positive went such a long way. I didn't need a lot, but I needed some. Um, and I was getting not very much unless it was following a, a stellar performance, like a breakthrough time. Um, so I think, you know, again, goes back to that high expectation of my mom. You know, I was always trying to please people. I was always being like, there, is that good enough? And really pushing myself. I am someone that I just, you know, I just gave a thousand percent every time. And I strive for excellency all the time. Um, but it did, you know, it filtered into that unhealthy territory. Um, and actually, I think initially I didn't realize how much damage it was doing mm. mentally um, until, you know, it was a, a bit late, really. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't um I didn't know that you'd had experiences with like disordered eating and things and obviously that's something I have experienced with as, as well um yeah I, I, I don't really know how to phrase the question but you know did people notice and and you know what what kind of um yeah because I obviously it's quite a secretive thing and if you're in this this thing with all these people around you all these coaches all these other athletes like what was that like? You know, did someone notice? Did someone tell you to stop? Did like how did that go down? So at school, it's it's more noticeable because we have a lot of communal eating, food meal times. You know, it's together, and um, so that was kind of where I felt like okay, if someone some people might notice things, and you have to be a bit more um, kind of strategic. Um, but I was really well looked after, and once you know, you know some of the girls didn't really know what to do. So they would tell um, Miss and she would, you know, have a quiet word. And it was very, it was dealt with very carefully and delicately. Um, and I felt like I was in a safe space. With the world of sport, I think there's a lot that goes on and there's a lot that people know, but because it's under the performance umbrella, we're a very complicit culture as well. And I think, you know, the majority, I was the Maverick member. So, you know, whatever I was told to do, it must have been for my good. So, um, and this is part of the stigma that I really kind of am trying to break down because a lot of high performance and that world of elite sport is not that healthy. You've got a lot of vulnerable people trying to work on this one goal, this dream that a lot of people have had since they were kids. I'm not, you know, I, I always say I didn't think I was gonna be an Olympian, but a lot of people have been dreaming about this from as young as five and six years old. So they're willing to do whatever it takes. Um, and I was like that, you know, once I got a taste of it, I was like, I need to, you know, sometimes it's not getting to the top that's hard, it's staying there. And also kind of trying to live up to all these demands. And it was coming from a lot of people that I felt indebted to, like, oh my gosh, you know, maybe I'm gonna get kicked off funding if I don't just do what they said. So I was, you know, willing to do whatever it took, but, you know, I got to the age where I knew that stuff that I was doing wasn't right and it wasn't right for me but I was already that hooked I was in under pressure I needed to perform and you can get away with this for so long this is how this is why you, you see a lot of athletes and they they have osteoporosis and things like this but they were running so well for so long they just keep going but what's happening is the body's breaking down bit by bit by bit 
And for me, it was, um, you know, I really struggled with fatigue um, at the worst of it. And my body just started attacking itself, um, which ultimately lent, led to complete burnout. Um, but at the time, you know, no one says anything. It's just like, well, that's what you need to do to run 157. So get on with it. <laughs> Yeah. And that's, that's terrifying that that's the, the case. And I, yeah, it, something I often speak about, I speak to coaches about, and I don't know if you agree with me, but I think the, the difficulty is it's obviously as a coach, your job is to make your athlete perform better. And usually if your athlete starts some form of disordered eating or excessive exercise, the origin, the kind of um, immediate re like reaction is their performance gets better because you know they lose a bit of weight they haven't lost too much muscle yet so you think like crikey like carry on whatever you're doing keep doing that but and that's where i think it gets masked is they think um and i and I, I don't know about you but this is how it was with me i wasn't i would never like a performance sport but i i started my disordered eating i got this benefit this like oh i look a bit better um, and then it, that stopped happening because, you know, my body wasn't getting enough nutrients. So I thought what I need to do is just push that even more. I need to go even more disordered because obviously I'm not doing it enough anymore. Was that similar to you or? Yeah, in parts. So for the most parts, I just naturally would fall to a certain weight. So I was just like, stop telling me to be this weight because I'm, mm -hmm. you know, I'm also a power athlete, you know, and when I was in a good space in life, I could think logically like that. I could stand up to whoever was trying to, you know, send me off kilter. But then when I was hurt or not feeling that confident, that's when there was more space for all that to infiltrate. I started doubting myself. Maybe if I had done what they said, I would not be injured right now, or I would have lost that race. And it would just start with, you know, losing races, to be honest. Um, and also like the language that people use, you know, quite often when I was, in sort of disordered eating and not in that healthy space, people would be like, oh, you look like a runner today, you, you know? And so I was like, okay, well, maybe I need to just keep looking like a runner <laughs> and, you know, I'm gonna keep running fast. But, you know, at my my skinniest, I would say, I wouldn't even really like for me to call myself skinny. I, and I only realized this in reflection, looking back and mm. I've, I'm looking at some photos thinking, wow, no wonder I ran that badly. Look at you, Maz. Majority of my photos, I look really strong. I look healthy. I'm smiling. And um, Commonwealth Games 2014 was probably the worst I've ever seen myself. And I knew what I was going through mentally as well. And it, and it showed, but no one ever said anything to me. You know, I was, I ran my slowest time in my career, to be honest. I didn't even run that slow when I was a junior. Um, but so much was going on mentally and psychologically. And it was also, you know, the time where I was not fueling at all, really, to be honest. And I, it was when I was out in America, obviously climate change is different. So I was just training so hard and pushing my body so hard, not fueling enough. And it took a, you know, a, a sports physiologist to say, you are going to break and you'll probably never run again if you don't stop and rest. Um, so that was really hard to hear. But then it got to that fine line where, yeah, I love athletics, but actually do I actually anymore because it's caused me so much heartache. You know, I need to start loving and nourishing myself because now it's a matter of my, my health. Um, and, you know, if I can't even walk, there's no chance of me running. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you for sharing that. And yeah, I think it's so important that people like you are coming forward and, and talking about this kind of stuff and, you know, and being that, that, face for the elite athletes the people who are you know, feeling that pressure those young athletes who are coming up and feeling the pressure to do that and you know you saying you know 
you wish someone had come forward and said something or you know what what do you wish someone had said can you can you put it i think it, I, for me it's hard for me to really know what exactly someone should say to me but do you do you have a example are you okay mm. no, very simple um i think one of the things that frustrates me and this is why i'm such uh the, the mentor that i am you know i've got i partnered with uh becky lynn who i used to race against and we've just launched the graceful girls mentoring program and you know i've loved mentoring ever since America, really, because I was director of operations and I was just that nice go between between the student athletes and the coaches. And I found they could tell that I could resonate with some stuff that the coaches might not, or they tried to use me as a go between. I was like, no, that stuff, you just need to go ask coach. But um, just being that relatable person mm. and often there were some really serious things going on that I could you know, be that intervention for and signpost them to where they could get that support. And there's just been a lot of lonely times in my career where I just wished, you know, and it's not to say that, you know, the people that I was around, they necessarily did a bad job or, you know, they wouldn't have been able to know a lot of stuff because I hit it that well. Mm. Um, but I didn't feel safe enough to talk to anyone. And I, that's one thing that I am always, my DMs are open and I do my best to talk to people because you just never know what people are going through. And, you know, as someone who has lived times with lots of masks on you know I, I can't say how lonely my time in America was because I was literally one person on the exterior for friends one person for work you know one person for people at home and it's exhausting you know and that contributed to a lot of you know my mental health problems as well um, but if you know one thing that I did take away from that time is two people in particular reached out to me former athletes um, Probably our paths didn't cross that much when I was competing. So one of them was uh, Hazel Clark, who's an incredible 800 meter runner. And I, you know, as she was finishing her career, I was just starting. Um, and I, I actually reached out to her a while before that uh, on Facebook and she didn't see the message. But then because I was in America, she suddenly thought, oh gosh. And she actually remembers, she said, I'm so sorry I didn't get back to that message. But I was like, it's okay, because actually then I probably don't need you as much as I need you now in this moment. And, you know, I was going through a really difficult um, relationship as well. And she really helped me through that. And just by being there and being able to say, do you need me to do this? Do you, you know, she connected me with the physiologist. You know, I'm sure if I asked her to come and get me, she would have. Um, and then Tasha Danvers, who was also living out in the States she was awesome and she was someone that i really related to because i've seen her go through some stuff but still managed to perform so she helped me realize that what i was doing was you know it, it does happen this is the pressure of this elite environment i'm not just crazy basically um well i am a little bit um <laughs> but yeah it's important to have someone that you feel like you can see is going to help you and is going to listen to you and not necessarily have all the answers and not necessarily tell you what to do, but just catch you in that moment where you need some support um, and to stop, you know, essentially for me, I felt like it just stopped me going overboard. You know, I am very strong in my faith and I just felt like there must be someone that, you know, is gonna be able to help me and understand and not judge me because that is what I was scared of. I was getting so much judgment left, right and center or in my head, I thought I was supposed to be a certain person. I can't go to this person because they're the per I'm the person they come to, you know, I'm just supposed to be strong. Whereas it was someone, and that's what a mentor I feel like is someone who you can just be yourself, be vulnerable with, and they 
will either just be there to listen or signpost you to the support that you need. That, that's that's awesome. And I think that's such a take-home message for people who are wanting to help their athletes if you're a coach or your clients if you're a personal trainer or just a friend is you we we don't need you to fix us or to give us the thing to to sort us out or any of that we just literally just the supporter just asking us how we are you know it yeah. even if even if you don't know where to sign post just say i will help you look for somewhere to go yeah. like that that's yeah. enough absolutely and and you know i go by the champion you coach and that is literally what I'm there to do. However, you need me to do that because, you know, that is something I think it's just something I really needed. Just someone who was just on my side, on my, like my teammate in that, you know, metaphorically, if nothing else. And I think with coaches, they're so used to, you know, having a plan and, and literally, like you said, fixing things. Mm. But sometimes they just need to know the person in front of them, get to know your athlete, get to know your client and you know figure out what they respond to because a lot of the time a lot of the issues i had with coaches on my level of in terms of athlete coach relationships they were so difficult because the coach kept telling me they knew me and i was like well if you know me you would never have said that to me or you would yeah. never be making me do what i'm doing um and how do you know me you haven't got to know me um i don't feel like i can come and tell you certain things and the people i know i can tell them anything mm. so you know i always say coach the athlete in front of you and that's the person before the event you know there's certain things that worked in the 800 meters historically in the uk that were never going to work for me and i put my body through the mill trying to fit into that you know that that box that i just didn't fit into yeah. And it's because my coaches didn't take the time to get to know me. I remember some, you know, the worst time was trying to part ways with coaches. And I often stayed, you know, at least a year too long because I was just too scared. You know, I didn't know how it was going to, you know, pan out. And I just would get told, you know, well, you're so uncoachable and, you, you know, well, you're crazy anyway. And this is real things coaches have said to me. Um, yeah, it was, you know, and all of that alone is abuse. You know, a lot of coaches don't want to hear it, um, but the language they use has such a deeper impact than they'll ever know. Um, and often they were coming from a place of frustration, fear, um, disappointment. But when an athlete chooses to move on, that is within their prerogative. You know, if things aren't working, I didn't expect my coaches to be, ex you know, I did expect them to be experts. Absolutely. I came to them for a reason, but I didn't expect them to be all knowing, you know, and a lot of coaches do have that kind of God complex, like it's my way or the highway. I was clearly someone that didn't fit the mold for a lot of different ideologies. But what I was looking for was someone who was like, do you know what, like George, let's figure out how you're going to run this 800 because I know you're going to be a great 800 meter runner. Um, so, you know, that's I, I'm always someone that's looking for, you know, the obscure route because it's, it's often not that obvious. And sometimes it is but if you just get to know the person in front of you. Yeah. And I think like you're saying, it's, I think it's not only is it just better for the athlete itself to, to, to mold the, the training and the nutrition and everything around each individual athlete. It's also optimal. Like you're going to get better athletes because everyone's body is different. Everyone reacts to training differently. Yeah. Yeah, everyone reacts to different forms of nutrition differently. So like, I don't, I, I, um, I don't want to like kind of swipe it off as something as simple as this, but it almost feels like lazy. Like it's like, oh, this is just what yeah. works. Like this is this 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 kind of works for everyone. And it like is. I'm sure, but it's it just like, yeah. yeah, absolutely, it's absolutely lazy coaching. 
And you know what? Once you have gone through that sort of initial period with an individual, I call it conditioning, mm. you might have a group of them that are so conditioned that they just go with that flow and you find that flow. But the initial period, it's going to take pruning. It's going to be work. You've got to do the graft, you know, the same way us athletes are told, you know, you've got to keep persevering, you've got to work hard. I think coaches need that mindset as well. Mm. You've got to take that initial period to get your athlete primed to train with you and your ideologies, your coaching plan may not work initially because it may not be for everyone. Mm. Um, You know, as much as we can, we can do the generalized thing. But if you're looking for optimum performance and when you're talking at those 1% levels, there's going to be have there's going to have to be that unique um, element to it and that individualization. And when you look at some of the best athletes we have, it's because everything is tailored around them. Look at Jess Ennis, Team Jenis. Mm. You know everything was tailored to her. Mo Farah, same thing. When he went over to the states, everything was you know tailored to him. I often talk about Perry Shake Straighten. Again, her and Coach Zar were just so close. And although she was, you know, a little different to the other two I just mentioned, he did what worked for her. So if she was in the middle of a session, it wasn't working. They figured out and he knew her so well and she knew him well enough to say, coach, this isn't working. A lot of athletes don't feel that confident that they can do that. Um, And that's something I never felt like I had. I was always just getting in where I fitted in. Um, And, you know, a lot of that is due to, you know, how I grew up. But I f- wish I had someone who was willing to be a bit more of a teammate. We got the performances out of me, but I would have loved to enjoy the journey a bit more. Do you think it's? Do you think it's? Kind of just thinking, you know, a coach might listen to this and be like, you know, we just it's just we're, you're so busy. Do you, do you think it's even the the case of like getting another member of staff in whose job is to to be like like you said you were with the student athletes that that go between that person mm-hmm. you, you know, who you could feel comfortable going actually I don't think coach's plan is working for me mm-hmm. and then they could you know think about yeah. it yeah you know if we're talking specifically about track and field there was very little money in it mm-hmm. so you know coaches are just as vulnerable I would say in that respect in terms of this isn't a re- career this is something I'm doing voluntarily this is you know fitting around my own life my own you know sacrificing just as much perhaps as athletes as well especially before you've made it onto the big stage so there is that element of you know I'm giving up my time for you this is what I have to offer you've come to me um type thing um it is changing I want to say the culture is changing a bit not enough for my liking and we do start in that club atmosphere as well so there is that element of you just kind of join a club and just everyone's merry on their way but you know when we're talking about professional sport and that's something track and field is not um you know i I struggle i always stutter when i say i was professional athlete because i think i was for part of my career but for the majority i was not um and so you know that kind of collaboration as well is not really fully utilized in sport and i would love to see this change because when you look at team sports you've got lots of different moving parts all coming together for the common good of that team. Um, And where there's money, obviously, it's a lot easier to do, but it starts with changing the mindset. That money is not gonna come if people don't see the need for it, if people don't understand why it's important to have someone else um, come in and, and give their perspective and also not feel threatened by it. You know, a lot of the times when I, you know, challenge something my coach gave me or even speak, now it's like 
it's met with a lot of resistance. Well, this has worked. And I think in track and field as well, we live in, in the golden era, which I like to coin, um, which is, you know, your, your Chris Akabusi's, Roger Black, Linford Christie. And, you know, there's a reason why they, you know, perform so regularly like that is because they were living that lifestyle. Um, and a lot of athletes today are not living an elite lifestyle, but expected to perform at elite level. So something somewhere has got to change because <laughs> it's now actually really toxic. Um, and a lot of athletes are, are having their hearts crushed and, you know, and it's coming at, at a greater cost than it really needs to. And I suppose that, and we aren't, you know, as the general public, we're not shown that they're not being it, not, we're just showing that, oh, they're not performing to this standard. Yeah. And then the media kind of says that they're not doing good enough. For, yeah, so. you know, the, the fans, you can only judge off what you are shown, what you mm. are fed. And, you know, the British media has a lot of work to do as well, but they too are, you know, essentially super fans that have made it their career to, to follow and, and um, publicise sport. But, you know, I've been crushed by a lot of things the media have put out about me. Mm. And, you know, sometimes they haven't even come to me to get this information. And then that's what the public then feel like they can say back to me. And I'm thinking, where's this coming from? You know, and at times where you have not had the greatest performance in front of everybody, you're very fragile your mindset is not great and then people just say these throwaway comments at you and it does a lot it, it does a lot of serious damage and that's why mental health is priority at my agenda whenever i'm you know doing anything to try and change the culture and sport i want them to be thinking about the mental health of athletes because we are humans first before we are entertainment before we are these machines you know we actually just cut us open we bleed exactly the same as everyone else we started the same as everyone else. We just, you know, decided to choose that career path and ran with it or through with it. You know, we yeah, just, yeah. you know, we're so dedicated and we're so good at focusing on one thing. Um, and that's ultimately, you know, we're hoping that's going to lead to success at the end of the day. But to turn around and say, well, this is what you do anyway all the time when I've just worked a 35 hour week doesn't go down very well. Yeah. <laughs> How do you know? You don't you don't know that. You don't know what's happening behind closed doors. You're not there at five o'clock in the morning when I'm getting up and by myself running around the track. Um, and there's a lot of misconceptions that, you know, I'm I'm on a mission to bust, to be honest. Mm. And I think I think that one of the, the biggest issues is the, you know, the the majority of the fans only see the really big competition so they only see you know your days at the olympics or you know for some people it is literally just the olympics that's it so yeah. all they see is you just oh you just run around a trap twice like <laughs> like yeah, is that it like <laughs> oh my god the visibility is insane because people remember athletics at the olympics every four years um we do have to work on our you know back in the day i think club athletics used to be on telly on saturdays mm. Now you can barely see our national championships and you only see the big events. And, you know, something that I have a gripe with the British meet directors is they don't have enough British athletes in those big events. They would rather bring over the international stars. But when I'm when I've been abroad, those international meets are filling up the lanes with their athletes. You know, international athletes don't come first. We're going to, you know, especially when you see the big diamond in Rome. There's so many Italian athletes, you know. So I wish we would, you know, lead from that perspective a bit more mm. and give the British athletes a chance to shine because that's all it is. You need that opportunity. We work just as hard as anyone else. But when you add that to opportunity, you can really excel. And that's what we see when we have these surprise 
um, young developing talent and they make the team and they've you know qualified and then they go out and they make the final and no one's expecting it but hey this is what happens when you nurture talent right um, but yeah again they only see the creme de la creme and you know if if I always say if an alien was plonked on earth <laughs> they think we had five athletes you know yeah, Jess Ennis, yeah. Farah, Greg Rutherford um, and, and a couple of others KJT because that's where you know we just have a few gold medalists in our basket and that's all we're content with whereas when I lived in America there's so many gold medalists you know so it was like everyone just had this mindset that I'm going to make it to USA's and I'm going to make that Olympic team whether they had ever done it before it didn't matter the way they spoke and the way they dedicated and just that motivation and wherever you went, like that's where I was rebuilt, to be honest, even though I was in such a crap place, excuse me. Um, when people heard I was Olympian, they were just like, oh my God, you're an Olympian? Like, whoa, you know, they didn't even, they'd never heard of me. They, you know, they, they didn't care. You know, even when I said I was a 800 runner, they're like, oh my God, the half mile is so hard. And it's just that respect for the graph that they know go, goes into track and field. And over in America, I think track and field is like, it's not even their top five sports. <laughs> you know, you've got NFL, basketball, baseball. Yeah. Um, but the appreciation for the athlete it takes. And I think, you know, athletics is one of the most organic sports. Everyone remembers sports day. Everyone, you know, has access to running and jumping and throwing mm. things about. Um, so, it, you know, I, and that's why I, I made that really conscious decision to not just walk away forever. Yes, I've retired, but I want to stay in touch and I want to see the culture rev revolutionized because in the UK, it is, it's, it's in crisis. It is a dying sport. We've had, you know, drugs mar a lot of, you know, the, the potential um, you know, of it being publicized more, you know, a lot of sponsors have pulled out because they don't want that association, but we're not the only sport, you know, yeah. it, it's, it's about getting that investment back into athletics, not just at grassroots because everything, everyone just says, oh, grassroots, grassroots. And I think it's a very easy throwaway term, but actually there's a lot that happens. There's so many transitions on the way. Let's look at university level student athletes. That's where, you know, right now, I think there's a lot that can be done to transform the amount of athletes we we convert from junior to senior. And then the athletes that are, you know, frontline right now, grafting like full time athletes, but doing that around full time jobs mm -hmm. and just hoping to get to trials and have their day. But that journey could be smoother if they were supported, you know, um, and then looking at athletes transitioning out. That is such a minefield right now you know and there's so much that we could do so much earlier in the process so there's so much to be done <laughs> yeah it is a lot and and speaking of that kind of transition now that kind of leads me on to what i wanted to talk about next is you have very recently been transitioning out and how are you you know how are you dealing with it all how are you like now with everything how are you feeling well i'm smiling so that's a good <laughs> sign um it was a very difficult decision to let go essentially mm. it was a very toxic relationship <laughs> excuse the reference but it was um i think i could have retired if i was in a healthier space in every sense of the word about five years ago um i think the last competition that i did that i felt like i was an actual athlete was 2014 commonwealth games in glasgow wow. But again, that was a poor performance. So you don't want to finish on a negative. You always want to 
bounce back and I'm someone that was like, listen, I've been knocked down so many times. I'm just going to keep getting back up and keep. And I did for such a long time, but this was just beyond me, you know, uh, and I literally had to hit rock bottom and then you just have that real, you know, that conversation with yourself. And I got to the point where I just thought, you know what, I love me again and I love myself more than running. My life means more than running. So, you know, there's a few people that come along the way and they say, you know, you owe this to yourself and they give you all that right encouragement, that motivation. And I started up the engine again and, and you know, three months later, no. And I was in this internal battle where I didn't want to run, but so many people were wanted me to run. So I was like, okay, let me see if I can do it for them. But unless you feel it and unless you're motivated, it's not, it's, for me, it's not going to happen. Um, and in 2018, I'd just come back from America. I was not in the best frame of, you know, headspace. I was not in a good relationship. Um, but I was fueled by Tokyo. I was like, I'm going to just get to Tokyo and that's going to be my final hurrah. That's, you know, one more, one more again. <laughs> and it worked for a bit. I changed my environment. I came up north. I was working with, you know, Jenny Meadows' husband, Trevor, who, and Jenny and I had some amazing battles and, I was in a nice community, I would say, but it wasn't necessarily my community. The kids were so young. There was nothing relatable. I was in that position where I felt like, oh my God, I've got to do everything on point because there's like these 14 year olds looking at me, but I was not healthy in myself. But what did come with that is some incredible parents. You know, even that to me was weird. I was like, why are these parents here all the time? <laughs> I wasn't used to that. <laughs> um, but a couple of those parents were really key. Um, Liv, who I always talk about, she's a pain nurse at Alderhey, and she noticed a lot of the, you know, mental health warning signs, um, and um, Bernie, who's also a counsellor, so they were really critical to sort of catching me in my breakdown and helping me, you know, come back out of that and signpost me to the right places, and yeah, I think it was that, that journey where I suddenly had to put Tokyo aside and I was like, if it's meant to be, it will be. But I want to come through this. This is probably my greatest battle yet. <clears throat> and whatever happens at the other side, I want to be whole again. I want to, you know, have my zest for life again, you know, and I just thought, I can't believe something that started so pure and was my dream has sucked the life out of me, literally. Um, and yeah, I just started rebuilding, taking it day by day. I got my beautiful little puppy who gave me a different focus. It was shifted off me. Um, and you know, I had to get out of bed because he need, he was going to do his toilet right there. And I didn't want that. <laughs> and I had to take him for walks and he was just so loving and just had, you know, the way they look at you, just like my, his whole life was in my hands. And he just brought so much joy and I am naturally a joyful person. I love to laugh. The funny thing about Dashens, they just look funny sometimes. <laughs> I just feel like laughing, you know. So motivation came there. I started doing some speaking and I think there's so much power in sharing your story and just reminding yourself of the beginning and the journey and how far you've come. So then I started to rev up again thinking, okay, I need to move, right? <laughs> Um, and then I did a dance competition for charity and the Change Foundation, an amazing charity down in London. And it was like a strictly inspired. Oh, cool. Strictly for change. And I love a bit. I'm desperate to get on Strictly, by the way. So <laughs> shout out to Strictly. Um, 
And that just got me. I had to train for that. So, you know, I'm about, I'm a showwoman. I'm like, I need to be fit. I need to win. So that comp competition came back out of me because I'd lost that. Um, and so that was, you know, March, 2020, we did the competition just in time and then lockdown happened. Uh, and, you know, natural me, I'm like, what lockdown can't stop me. I was literally recreating everything. Like, come on guys, we're just going to get creative. For me, I felt like, you know, it stopped time a little bit and I could catch up. I was like, yeah, postponing the games. It's meant to be, um, got some support with my training from a friend in Australia, Tamsin, her brother sent me all these programs. And I suddenly felt like, oh my God, I've got everything I need. Like, you know, I was working for the charity so I can pay my bills. I don't have overflow, but I've got enough. I've got what I need, I can get through this. Uh, I got the training that I finally was really enjoying. It was summer and then winter came. <laughs> and I just literally was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. And so then that turmoil came and, you know, I'm quite seasonal in my moods anyway. And it was just that I started to get after my birthday in September, it's just oh, downward trajectory. Mm. And I just lost that motivation for going out to train on my own. And then Tokyo was on and on, off, on, off, on, off, on, off. And I couldn't deal with that. Um, when I was diagnosed with depression, I was taking some antidepressants and I just struggled with that whole do I take them? Do I not? Just because of culturally, you know, people were saying, you know, really unhelpful comments, but I thought I just wouldn't be productive. And I just, you know, I've always had this divisive battle in my head. If they're going to help me be productive, I'm going to take them. So I just figured, how am I going to run? Like, I'm just, I've been all over the place. I'm someone that truly believes that, you know, how you train is how you can race. And I just didn't see myself making the team. And that's the first time ever I've questioned whether I could make the team. And I said, I didn't even think it was because I didn't have the talent for it. I just didn't have the motivation. I wasn't doing what I knew or what I'd done in the past to make teams. I wasn't seeing that drive in me anymore. And so we got to kind of Christmas and I went for a couple of runs and I was running around my old, my old stomping grounds. I think it was, you know, subconsciously like a, a saying goodbye. Um, I had two weeks of running more mileage than I've ever run that whole year. <laughs> and December 31st, 2020, I just said, I don't want to run anymore for me. I don't want to run and that is okay. That's so awesome. I had to give myself a month <laughs> to really make sure because obviously I've quit quite a few times. <laughs> and actually, I correct myself. I didn't quit, you know, I retired. Mm. I said, you know, I've had enough and rightly so it's been almost a 20 year journey um so january i was very intentional and i thought i'm going to come out of january and i'm going to know whether i'm actually going to commit to tokyo or i'm going to so i still wasn't quite 100 percent um but by january 14th i just knew that you know there was other things that i needed to pursue other things had started to turn my head i'd started working with um some other companies that help athletes with transition no one had quite nailed it for me the closest was future proof pro and they connected me with a, a psychologist and hypnotherapist, Claire. And finally, someone was actually trying to get to know Marilyn, you know, what makes me tick? And although it was career profiling, I liked the, the, the fact that they did signpost me to a, a therapist. And, you know, me being just always digging deeper, I was like, can we try some hypno <laughs> or some regression therapy, you know, because you know, I need to know what's going on. Why do I feel like this? This is so foreign from my normal, let's just plow through everything. 
Um, and, you know, as I got to my height of my self-awareness, as I got to be okay with who I was, own my emotions, I was okay with not wanting to run again. I was okay with what I'd achieved. I was more than okay. I actually realized, heck, I had a heck of a career. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was time to bow out gracefully. And I didn't want to be bitter. I just wanted to try and help, you know, and be part of the solution of all the issues that I've had. Um, and I, quite frankly, it's just not good enough that, you know, in 20 years, nothing's changed. And I don't want us to go another 20 years and the same thing's happening to the next generation. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. So yeah, so now I'm working in that space. I have qualified as a, done my life coaching certification and I want to specialize in transitions and mindsets. I want to introduce that kind of asset-based coaching to the sporting world. You know, we have coaches, but they're there, they're specialists and experts. Mm. And I want to be that coach that is looking at you from a holistic, you know, well-being point of view, but also helping you with your brand strategy as an athlete. We have so many ideas. We've got our intellectual property and we've got our networking, but we often don't know how to bring that together. That's what I'm learning. You know, I am my my guinea pig. Um, and you know, the power of networking. So I've been networking my head off like crazy and just hoping something sticks and some amazing things have come out of that. You know, how we met that whole working group is just fueling me so much. You know, it's making me want to go into further study. And I think there is, you know, there there is a solution, but it takes many minds. It's going to take a lot of collaboration. And so I've come out of a crazy world of competition and realizing the power of collaboration is actually how we all really win. Um, and I guess I've redirected my focus and my mm. purpose um, and feel fulfilled again. I think a lot of athletes are looking or waiting for that thing that's going to make them feel um, what they felt when they were competing. I don't think anything should, you know, I mm. think it's just going to be new. Um, and I don't think you have to reinvent yourself. That was one part of you and that's never going to go anywhere. I am always going to be a two-time Olympian. My medals are there. You know, I did it with integrity and I did it the best I knew how with the best I had. And so now it's just about giving back. That's very important part of my values and, you know, building that legacy and also just being part of the solution and supporting. And that's why, you know, I am writing my book and I'm starting my own podcast and just talking about the courageous things that we need to talk about to help whoever needs that and needs to hear that at that time amazing i don't think i want to i was going to ask some more stuff but i don't think i think i want to leave it there um but i i ask three questions to everyone who comes on my podcast at the end um and i know we've been talking for a while now are you okay for me to do three questions yeah awesome okay so the first question is a person either real or fictional who has been a big inspiration for you in your life Oh, that's such a good question. <laughs> I would have to say, I like that you put fictional because I feel like I do have some characters that I've made up in my head, but definitely Serena Williams. I think she is, I did meet her briefly at 2012 and I just see a lot of myself in her. She was finally someone I thought, oh, I can see myself in her. I had a lot of people say that they can do that, see themselves in me. And I just thought, oh, God, who do, who motivates me? But I just love the businesswoman that she is, the mother she is, the insanely talented athlete that she is. And she just, 
you know, she, the media have put her through the mill and she's just so good at how she handles that. That's, you know, where I learned to just own yourself and be unapologetically, you know, me. And, you know, I remember being in Miami one year and I must have had a curly wig or something. And someone was like, Serena, Serena. <laughs> and um, my coach was like, she's not effing Serena, excuse my French. Um, and I was like, I can be Serena. Like I was so honored to be confused. I will be her doppelganger. Um, and I wish I could find it, the photo we took together. We both had our big curly hair. Oh, um, but you know, my coach was thinking I was gonna be upset. And I was like, why would I be upset? Well, cause she's big well that's what i get told and you know what so what we are muscular we are strong we are amazing at our sport so yeah definitely serena she's definitely given me this you know this permission to just own it <laughs> yeah yeah and that's fantastic and she is obviously an incredible athlete and just a overall amazing person from everything i've read about that's her good. so question two a moment in your life that you didn't like at the time but looking back now you know positives came from it Oof. Okay. Um, there's two. Okay. So I guess not to, <laughs> not as a bit decisive. My childhood, um, I really, really struggled at times and I didn't understand why such bad things were happening because I wasn't a bad person. Mm. Um, but it has shaped me into the woman I am today. And a lot of those lessons have put me in good stead for situations I face now and actually supporting some of my mentees through things. Um, so that definitely is a time I'd refer to. But also, you know, I spent five years in America. I went out to live the dream and it was kind of a nightmare. <laughs> but, you know, I had to learn to see what the lessons were in that. And actually some really beautiful things happened. I worked for the university. I think that's something that sustained me through that. And as much as I was like, oh, I had to pretend to be, you know, it's, it's actually something that saved me from a lot of dark things that I could have done. So yeah, those hardships and those bad times, there's, there's something that you either needed to learn um, and it's definitely gonna put you in good stead for things that you're gonna face in another time. Mm. And that's why I love that question. It's always my favorite one of the last three because I think great question. Yeah, I just think it's great that you know if people are listening and are going through that, that that moment at the moment where they feel like everything's kind of not going to plan. You know, I think usually you come out of it and you actually think yeah. I learned yeah. a lot. Absolutely. <laughs> so the final question. Well, I've noticed that like someone told me recently that these aren't even questions; they're just things I ask people to say. Um, so the final not question question <laughs> is a phrase to live by. Oh my gosh. Do you know what? I'm so that person. I've got a phrase for everything. And now you put me on the spot. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> hmm, what would be my favorite one? Oh my gosh. There's so many. <laughs> There's so many. I don't know. Um, I just always think, you know what? Dream big and never give up. Never give up on you. Um, another phrase that I really love, I've just started putting together my assets for my talks, it would have to be, you know, reframe your self-critic and realize your self-champion. Because, you know, there's always going to be that doubt. Everyone has it. It doesn't matter how confident they look on the exterior. Everyone's gone through something that's fueled them to that 
you know, that success or that wow, or that thing that you think that they are just bossing, you know, and everyone's mm. going through something, it's all relative. But if we can, you know, you know, get hold of our self-critic and actually become our self-champion and it starts and stops with you, um, that's massive. That's going to really just change the lens of how you attack things and actually give you that confidence too. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. I agree. there in the end. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What an amazing podcast though. We've been speaking for nearly an hour and a half now and uh, thank you so much for coming on. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I loved it. Absolutely. I kept staring at your jumper, which is Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, For the people, people uh, listening, it's the boys get sad too. There's there's an Instagram account you can go to. It's called boys get sad too. And they're they're awesome. They have lots of stuff like this. So, um, Everyone at home, as always, thank you so much for listening and I will see you at the next episode. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to that episode. Here at Maya Minds, we're trying to raise awareness for all the things that we speak about in this podcast. So please, if you can, give it a share. Each and every one of you has the potential to help us with that. Also, if you want to check out myminds.com, please do. You can see all our social media things on there and we'd love to have you contributing more as a part of our community. Thank you.